This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It will eventually be springtime. Uh, I know the calendar says that happened some time ago, but uh, we know better. Just look outside over the last couple of days. Uh, And because of this uh, ridiculous weather that we've had, uh, Hamilton streets are in terrible shape. I don't need to tell you that. If you've driven on them, if you've cycled on them, if you've walked on them, you know that Hamilton streets are in miserable shape. Well, City Council has approved an extra $20 million for shave and pave cash in response to questions arisen by many of you, uh, as you've called your councillor over the last number of weeks. Money represents a nearly 50% increase in the city's road repair workload. But not everybody's happy with the way the money's being allocated. Joining us on the program is Terry Whitehead, the City Councillor for Ward 8 on the West Mountain. Terry, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Are you there, Terry? Yes, I am. Okay. Uh, maybe you could give us a, a quick overview as to what's going on. Why is this uh, this particular spring so much worse than others? You've been on council a long time. Have you seen something like this before? No, I haven't. Uh, the, the, the freeze and thaw episodes are triple what the normal uh, freeze and thaw periods are in the last decade. Uh, so clearly uh, that has a, a profound impact on the uh, road infrastructure. And it's not unique to Hamilton. I mentioned yesterday, I was listening to uh, uh, one of your sister stations in Toronto, and uh, uh, and the talk, it was a talk show, and it was talking about all the uh, pothole issues in, in Toronto. So this is not unique to Hamilton. It is a phenomenon that we have to deal with and uh, and have to address. So where's the money going to come from? This Because uh, you guys actually did this during the budget process, is that right, this extra $20 that, million? That's correct. So we, 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 uh, we increased uh, the capital budget to... Uh, uh, further address uh, this uh, phenomena and the impacts on our road infrastructure. When you came up with that number, uh, was there any consultation with staff about what kind of money you'd be looking at, or did you just kind of pull this number out of the air? Well, I believe it was, in, in fact, con- in consultation with the staff, and uh, there was a suggestion that uh, that uh, you, know, you take 15 wards and, uh, and uh, contribute about $900,000 uh, to each of the wards for the uh, additional dollars uh, uh, to the road network. So so there was some mathematics in this and some planning in this, and that's how you came up with the number. That's correct. All right. Now, my understanding is that the meeting yesterday, uh, yourself and a couple of the other councillors, uh, were not really happy with the way the money's being doled out. Let's talk about that. Well, I think the the issue is is that, uh, and this uh, what brought to light is uh, the, the, the profound... Uh, challenges on Main Street and the amount of potholes and the experiences of the of the driver. And uh, so emergency uh, funding was uh, provided to uh, address this phenomenon on Main Street. Uh, it was done within three months. And uh, so in light of that, uh, it was clear through the broader discussion that there are many other roads uh, that are in similar situation uh, as a result of, uh, again, uh, the, the weather phenomena that we'd be dealing with. Uh, across the city, and that uh, uh, that if we're equitably going to be treating these kind of issues, we should be doing it across the city. And uh, so the council supported an increase in the capital budget to address this issue. And uh, again, uh, the the spirit and the thought of this was that this was going to go to uh, emergency spending this year uh, towards those roads that have been identified as uh, in need. And uh, the staff had come back and indicated to us that they may not be able to do it this year, and there becomes the problem. Well, let's talk about that, because I know that some of the recommendations from staff 
are Burlington Street, Cannon Streets, uh, and, uh, well, we can go down a number. You mentioned Main Street just a little while ago, and there's been some concern, and there was a criticism from some of the uh, suburban councilors, but I, I would think that probably you guys on the mountain, uh, the three councilors on the mountain may want to chime in on this too, that uh, there seems to be a feeling among some people on council, Terry, that once again the downtown is being favored here and the other areas are kind of left to fend for themselves. Well, I mean, I think this is uh, certainly a perception from the broader community that uh, when you take, for example, Ward 8, there's 6,600 kilometers of roadway. Uh, Ward 8 has about 250 kilometers of, of that. Uh, so when you get into the suburbs and the mountain, there's a lot more road infrastructure than there is downtown. But there seems to be a disproportionate amount of money being spent uh, in the downtown versus meeting the needs of the broader community. Why is that happening? Well, that's a good question, uh, and I think that's why councillors are raising, uh, and you know, suburban councillors like Councillor Ferguson has every right to uh, identify uh, the challenges of, of their wards, and uh, and uh, we are challenging uh, these issues. There's been a, a profound uh, view on, and we know and understand and appreciate downtown is the heart of the city, and we need to ensure that we uh, uh, provide adequate uh resources and support for downtown, but it cannot come at the complete expense of the balance of the city. Well, I'll give you an example of this. I mean, I know they mentioned Cannon Street, and I've driven down Cannon Street in the last couple of days, and you're right, it's in miserable condition uh, because of the amount of traffic, I guess. But yesterday afternoon, I drove along Stone Church in your ward up in the West Mountain, and it's just as bad. It's in terrible shape. And, and, and I'm thinking, well, where's the prioritization going on here? Well, and you add on top, if you've been watching this and uh, reading the Spectator series, uh, for every one unit uh, uh, being built in the whole downtown area, there's 11 units being built outside of the downtown. Uh, so the, the massive growth that's taking place is not downtown, but outside of downtown, and yet, uh, which obviously drives a lot more traffic, a lot more uh, 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 population, and yet, proportionally, we're not being the needs of the, uh, the uh, suburban communities. So what's going to happen? I mean, they've already identified, I mean, they did say upper gauge uh, is one of the priorities here. But again, it seems as if most of this $5.9 million, the initial money going to be spent here, is going to be on downtown. And I know you even got a warning from staff yesterday suggesting that a lot of you, including yourself, I guess, in Ward 8, may just have to wait till next year for that. Are you satisfied with that? Can you live with that? Absolutely not. Uh, I think that, the, uh, the, the, again, the, the essence of the, the additional funding... Uh, was classified as emergency funding, meaning the needs of, uh, of roadways that have endured uh, the significant weather phenomena in regards to the potholes and the complaints that we're receiving. And we're, by the way, receiving a lot of complaints. So we are trying to address that issue in a meaningful manner and uh, in a timely fashion. And uh, the purpose of the funding was to actually have it implemented uh, this year to address those issues. And when staff come back and say we may not be able to do it this year, then we need to understand what the barriers are uh, that's preventing it. And the other issue, of course, is how they uh, prioritize roads. For example, as you can see in the news uh, piece, I talked about scenic. Scenic doesn't have a sidewalk. So what happens with not only with all the potholes that they're enduring, but there is uh, it creates an unsafe uh, environment for pedestrians and cyclists because people are trying to avoid the potholes and there's no place for them to go either than to the side of the road. And again, it's creating a safety issue for cyclists and, and pedestrians. So those uh, uh, that metric should be part of the prioritization of uh, the road network. 
So why isn't it? I mean, I want to go back to the analogy, and I know a number of counselors use this time and time again, Terry, about steering and rowing. It's counsel's job to steer and set the direction and say, this is what we're going to do, and then it's the staff's job to do the rowing. In other words, to do the hard work and make this thing happen. Uh, where's counsel's voice on this to set the priorities for this money? Well, I mean, they, they, I don't think it's an issue of uh, priorities uh, in respect to what roads need to be done based on the metrics. I think the issue right now is whether it's feasible uh, or practical or even pragmatic to be able to do it in one year. And one of the bona fide uh, arguments that came from staff, and I'll give credit for it, is that uh, when you have this much more work to do and you have to go out and procure it, uh, there's a limit capacity to deliver the service in the community. So that's one of the challenges, and I think that is one we also need to consider and see uh, whether or not uh, we can overcome. I can tell you that one of the, the, the part, uh, part of the discussion came out was that when um, staff are already in the neighborhood, for example, uh, through the capital program and through economies of scale, uh, there are better synergies to address these kinds of issues. So uh, the question is, can we dovetail some of these emergency work on what's already taking place uh, adjacent to capital works in the award across the city. And I think that's achievable. Is that going to save money, or is it just going to make sure the job gets done? Two things. It saves money and it gets the job done, because you get more linear uh, kilometers of uh, roadway done when you're uh, uh, putting it through uh, one procurement uh, of work that's already being done uh, with an adjacent road uh, network. And listen, I've heard this argument before, and it was way back when I was on council, and we used to hear staff say that, that even if somebody came in and said, you know, just dropped a pile of money and said, here, here's the funding for all the road work that you need, that you couldn't do it all in one year. First of all, because there are only so many companies out there that do this, and, that, and they're not just working in Hamilton, they're working in other areas. And, and second, look, you got to think of the implications it would have on traffic if you had all these roads closed for reconstruction. But that's, that's, a, that's a great argument, Terry. But you know what? It's not the reality because that's not going to happen and you don't have the money for it. So you still have to go back to the idea of prioritizing. And, and what I'm hearing from Councillor Ferguson in Ancaster, from you and from others in other parts of the city, Councillor Collins spoke up about this at the meeting yesterday, is that, look at uh, every time this, we get a list back of the priorities, it just seems as if it's set downtown focused, and the rest of the city is kind of left to fend on their own. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to make it that divisive because there are needs in downtown too, uh, but I want to make it clear that there has to be some equity distribution of tax dollars. And when you talk about pri- uh, priority. Uh, let's be clear, we're not talking about rebuild here. Uh, a rebuild is where you're doing the underground, uh, curbing, urbanization. Uh, these are significant costs and uh, a lot more complex. And, and you know what? That's a, co- a very clear distinction and one needs to be made. Because if you're doing a total rebuild where you're doing infrastructure and sewers and re- all that sort of stuff, I can understand why the downtown may have to have prioritized simply because it's older. Those pipes down there may be newer, or not as, as new, rather, as some of the other areas. But once you're talking about road surfacing, uh, don't tell me the golf links in Ancaster or Stone Church in your ward is any less traveled than some of the streets downtown. No, uh, without question. I think uh, uh, when you start taking a look realistically at the numbers on, uh, for example, Stone Church, uh, and I think any neighbor uh, uh, that's listening on Stone Church can tell you that uh, there's times that you, could, you have to wait a very long time just to get your neighbor onto Stone Church because of the traffic volumes. So uh, clearly uh, the, the traffic has increased significantly on the mountain. Uh, the loads on the roads in, increase. So we really are talking about uh, shave and pay, which is really quick to do uh, and very inexpensive to do, relatively speaking. 
And uh, so I don't think it's too complex to get to those roads that uh, are very bad in regards to the surface treatment and do a quick shave and pave. So the staff have made it clear that shave and pave, uh, uh, pave is inexpensive and, uh, and can uh, certainly prolong the, the life of the underground on those particular road networks. So uh, we believe that, uh, that there's no reason at all for staff to delay uh, meeting the needs of every ward in this city uh, this year on a shave and pave uh, uh, format. Well, we saw that happen. I mean, you mentioned Main Street West, uh, and that got a lot of attention, of course, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, I suppose, from Council. And it was happening right outside our window here, outside the studio. So I saw this work going on, and you're right. It, it's it's a little inconvenient for a few days, but it gets done very quickly. They just kind of shave the top part of the road off, resurface it, repaint it, bingo, bango, you're off again. And it looks great, and it's it's going to add years to the to the life of the road. We get that. Uh, but is the question here? Is the question here that you don't have the resources or the, the 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 staffing to do all this work, or is it that you don't have enough money to do all the jobs that need to be done? Which is it? First of all, the money is there, so it's not a money issue. Uh, staffing is there; it's not a staffing issue. Uh, the question is when you talk about contracts and contractors. Uh, you know, it's very competitive. It's just not Southern Ontario uh, or Hamilton, sort of, uh, that is utilizing the capacity of. Uh, of qualified uh, road contractors. So uh, the question is, what is the capacity of the road construction network to uh, actually uh, get the work done in the city of Hamilton? And that's the holdup as far as you're concerned? Well, I think that's part of the limitation. I mean, I'm not buying it, but having said that, that's the, uh, that's one of the barriers that uh, city staff have identified in regards to being able to deliver uh, the $20 million worth of projects uh, this year. What about the money? Sorry, additional projects. Yeah, yeah additional projects, because I know you've got capital budget projects, and, yeah. and there's a priority list for that. And those are roads that are going to get done, and maybe sewers and all that sort of stuff. And, and that's a debate that goes on every year, and you've already done that. you got your capital budget already. What about the area rating money? You and the other seven councillors from the old city have got $1.5 million every year. Why don't we put some of that money towards this project? Well, uh, in fact, it is. In, in, in my board, in the last eight years, uh, $14 million, thir- uh, million nine hundred fifty thousand have gone to hard infrastructure in my ward. So when you look at Westcliff uh, neighborhood, completely redone. Uh, you're looking at Buckingham uh, neighborhood, which is a pretty significant neighborhood. Uh, but end of this year, it should be hundred percent done. Uh, so uh, then you look at major streets like uh, Rymo, and you look at uh, Caledon and Region and San Diego and San Francisco. Uh, I mean, we are doing a lot of roads. In, uh, in in Ward Eight, and that's from the area rating money. So it is happening, but it, all the money that uh, that I have for the area rating is already earmarked for many of these projects. Well, and that's going on in Ward Eight, and that's good to hear. But uh, unfortunately, some of your council colleagues don't seem to have the same list of priorities, and and that may well be part of the problem. So listen, I, I got about thirty seconds left here, Terry. Uh, you've raised your voices about this. Others council, other councillors have too. I, do you just walk away and say, well, that's the way it's going to have to be, or is there something you can do about this? Oh, I get a sense that this council is not going to settle uh, for not uh, when you classified it as emergency funding to address emergency needs in each ward. I don't think any council is going to let that go and not have it done this year. Uh, you know, you could see that Councillor Ferguson, myself, and Councillor Collins yesterday already put our order in the water and say this is, needs to be done and it will be done, and uh, we're doing it through uh, motion because uh, staff have indicated that's their preference, and so you know we're going to do exactly what they're requesting. See what happens at Council on this. Uh, Councillor, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it, Terry. 
Thank you for having me, Bill. Terry Whitehead, Councillor for the West Mountain on Ward 8. Got some concerns about it? Call your city councillor. Uh, more voices mean action. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's the Chief's Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is with us here in studio for the full hour. And if you have questions uh, for the Chief of Police about uh, policing here, about uh, public safety, traffic safety, uh, it runs the gamut. Uh, this is the time, this is the place to get a hold of uh, Chief of Police Eric Gert. Here are the numbers, 905-645-3221. That's 905-645-3221. If you're on a cell phone, it's a toll-free number. It's star 9900. Of course, you'll do that hands-free. The Chief of Police is here, after all, and he'll know if you don't. Uh, you can reach us on email, bkelly at 900chml.com, and on Twitter at chmlbillkelly. Your questions, your comments, your thoughts about uh, policing here in the city with Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Good. Good to see you again, Chief. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me, Bill. i got a lot of stuff I want to get on to here, uh, but let me maybe first of all talk about uh, what was a big story and I think continues to be a big story, and of course that was the disturbance some time ago now on Lock Street and uh, the ensuing investigation. Uh, there was another demonstration just a couple of weeks after that, and maybe we can uh, compare and contrast what happened on that Saturday night with what happened on the Sunday morning a few weeks later and uh, how police handled that, and then I want to talk about the arrest. So let's let's get into that if we could. Yeah, and as you state, there are two different events. Obviously, the original event uh, in early March was a flash event, so to speak. It was uh, We didn't have uh, forewarning in terms of uh, notice that people were going to demonstrate or anything like that. So a Saturday night at 10 o'clock with the resources that are deployed elsewhere. And we did have uh, phone-ins from uh, neighbors who talked about a number of people at a park. Our officers responded. Of course, they were pelted with the rocks. They kind of... Um, regrouped and then uh, many of those people fled and then reconvened later. Uh, so we had to marshal basically uh, troops from the existing complement doing all the other jobs that night and you know we had 30 officers within 19 minutes down to Lock Street to respond to uh, the people using I'll call it black block tactics where uh, they will show up in the park for example in normal clothing have in their backpacks black clothing including obviously covering their faces and then marched and committed the uh, acts that they did of mischief um, on Lock Street. And then, of course, we responded within that time span. Keeping in mind, we're drawing from uh, other divisions. So mm-hmm. people may be coming from the East End, being as far away, you know, theoretically as just in the line in Grimsby. We obviously would deploy units closer. Uh, same thing on the mountain. And to coalesce all those units to have them. Now, when they had the demonstration on Lock Street, um, that was pre-planned. We had time to prepare. We had our public order unit. Uh, we also had uh, our uh, mounted patrol unit along with uh, supplements from uh, both Toronto for the mounted patrol and from Waterloo for the public order unit because we were also hosting uh, the Around the Bay race uh, that day on yep. Sunday and that requires a lot of resources as well. So really our goal was to have, um, uh, you know, Log Street not occupied by these people that were had conflicting goals. We didn't want any further disturbances. And we, uh, you know, ensure that they didn't, in fact, uh, clash there or escalate the situation. And that's really what we want. Public and, but there was a different strategy, though, Chief. And I, now I was not there. I was yep. over at the Around the Bay race. Yep. Uh, you know, we were broadcasting, of course, from First Ontario Centre. But uh, I, I talked to some of our reporters that were on the scene on Lock Street. And, and the strategy, as, as they described it, and I, I'd like to get your comments on this, seemed to be one of containment. They wanted, you know, it wasn't to stop the demonstration. It was to Correct. simply say, it's going to stay here. You're not going out on the side streets. There, there'll be no, there's, there's no maverick activity going to be happening here. 
That's correct, and it was uh, exactly that. We deterred them from going to certain spots and you know redirected them, and that requires a lot of resources, but we did it in a peaceful fashion. And yes, people are allowed to protest. Uh, constitutionally, it's guaranteed. However, and that's what happened on Log Street, when it turns violent or becomes criminal, that's a whole other thing. Um, and again, you know, people don't have permits. Doesn't mean they can just have a, uh, I'll call it a flash demonstration, show up and just march wherever they want. You have traffic issues. You have safety of both the demonstrators and the public. Uh, so we were trying to ensure that we kept all that contained. The people were safe. The demonstrators were safe. We didn't have any escalation to criminal activity. With the, but there were some potential confrontations even that day. Uh, because there were two differing factions that were in the same neighborhood, on the same street, as it turned out. Uh, is is there a rule of thumb for, for police in situations like that about intervention? If, if things look to get out of hand, do you get in the middle of it? Do you, what happens? And again, it's all contextual. It depends on uh, the level of violence or the level of demonstration. If people are just having words, that's one thing. If they're causing a disturbance, that can be another thing. If it's escalating to an unlawful assembly, that's different yet again. So there's all these kind of gradations. And of course, we apply force in a gradual fashion, commensurate to whatever's presenting in front of us. So uh, there's really no simple answer, Bill. It's kind of contextual to what's happening in front of you. If somebody's being physically assaulted, and I think you heard that from Inspector Hamilton when he talked about the day on, yeah. the famous line, you know, if this happened, it's game on. Well, that's true. And obviously, we're going to ensure uh, people's safety. If there's somebody going to be killed or injured, that changes everything, just like it does on a day-to-day basis in terms of our response uh, and our use of force. But when I talked to you, as we knew this was going to happen, and Deputy Chief Kinsella was on the show, I yep. think, the Friday before. That's right. And, and and Dan was talking about, I don't want to use the term game plan, because I, I don't want to you know boil this down to a football analogy. But there was a plan in place there, uh, and, and obviously training. And in other yeah. words, uh, I got the sense from talking to you and from che- Deputy Chief Kinsella that the officers were prepared for any eventuality. In other words, if this happens, we're going to do this. If this happens, not, not anticipating it, but just knowing that if it does, there was a protocol that was going to come into play that said, okay, let's go into plan B now. Yeah, and we do have operational plans. We have operational plans, whether it's Grey Cup, the Around the Bay, events that we know about or demonstrations that we know about, we develop operational plans, and it's exactly that. If this happens, then this. If this happens, then that. What are the contingencies? What are the overriding principles? And the principles are to keep the peace, allow for lawful uh, demonstrations, and uh, keep order in the city. That's fundamentally it. Um, And then if we do have to apply force, we do it in a gradual fashion, and we're guided both by adequacy standards and our training and all those other things. To your point, you have an operational plan because, and this is where the public is so important, if people know about it, they tell us. When they tell us, then we can check on other sources, corroborate, find out. Often with demonstrations and with people who are uh, protesting or marching, we'll go and meet with them. What are your objectives? What are you trying to do? Um, this is what you're allowed to do. Well, lawfully. we had that situation that you would call, obviously, a chief a couple of years ago uh, when there was uh, some Aboriginal, some Indigenous folks that wanted to protest and mm-hmm. were marching up the Red Hill. Yep. Uh, Brian Mullen was the chief at the time, yep. and, and, and I guess I found after the fact that he had advanced conversations with them, knew yep. what they were going to do, and, and they, they, they did their demonstration. It, it caused a little bit of traffic mayhem for a little while, but no harm, no foul. Nobody was injured because they knew exactly what the plan was. They were alongside, made sure, monitored it, I guess, and, and that was it. Yeah, and I mean, it seems so obvious, but, you know, why wouldn't the police go and ask them what it is they're trying to do or what their objective is? And we do that. That's kind of what has changed in the course of events. That can be at labor disputes. That can be at these type of events. 
and any time. So the starting point is always, you know, what's the objective? What are you doing? Uh, here are the rules of engagement from our perspective so that everybody knows up front. All right. And as that was going on, I'll go back to the rogue event that happened in early March. Uh, there was a police investigation. Yes. So while you're doing this and planning for the second event, uh, at the same time, you have officers doing some investigation. Yep. Now, I, I know that you can't talk about everything right now because there's a pending court case, I assume, that's going to be happening here. There is. But maybe if you can walk us through on a, on a, on a, a, a macro level about how you do this. I mean, I, I think you mentioned at the time that when we were saying, well, who would be responsible for this, that I'm going to use a phrase that we hear an awful lot in the news, but I think it's probably germane to this discussion. There are people who are known to police for various things. That's right. Was that a factor here? Uh, it always is, and any intelligence we have, any pre-information we have, but as you know, the standards before the courts, certainly the standard for arrest, I'll get into kind of what the benchmarks are, you have to have reasonable grounds to arrest a person. And reasonable grounds are a set of facts and circumstances uh, that would cause a cautious, ordinary, prudent person to have reason to believe and that goes beyond mere suspicion. Not my definition, the court's definition, but we're compelled to know that. For a conviction in court, it has to be beyond, beyond a reasonable doubt. So I know there was lots of suspicions at the outset. Uh, we work in a constitutional democracy that has safeguards. We can't arrest on the basis of suspicion. Uh, we can compel, one of the few things we can do is a roadside screening device based on suspicion that somebody's drinking. It's one of the few sections in the criminal code that would allow you to act on suspicion. The rest, uh, you have to have reasonable grounds. It's a higher threshold. So I know there's a public sentiment to say, you know what, we know who did it because we saw the news and we did this and we think this and we saw the social uh, websites uh, and through the social network. Um, but we have to be able to prove it. So we are diligent in our investigation. The investigation is not concluded, and we continue on in that investigation. Uh, you've talked to us about this in the past, about somebody who may call and say, hey, there's a crack house down the street. Why don't you go and arrest those guys? Uh, and there may well be a crack house down there, but uh, I, I know that, uh, that the Crown prosecutors talk about it with you on a consistent basis. They've got to build a case because exactly. uh, there's no, going to be no conviction just based on the hearsay from somebody up the street. And that's a really important point uh, on the hearsay piece. Uh, we found, and I'll take it out of, you know, not this situation, but the Boston Marathon bombing. Mm -hmm. A lot of the social media was reporting, uh, the, 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 not the social media, but the media itself was reporting based on social media reports. When they traced back to uh, the posts that had been done, it was a repeat of somebody heard about something, about heard something, about heard something. So there was really no corroboration as to the facts. So what the Boston police did as a result was start publishing from their own website and say, this is what we know. I know from a public perspective, people would like to know instantly. We have to check the veracity of the information before we post it. But that's got to be different, difficult for law enforcement officers in, in any jurisdiction when you're in a crisis situation. Uh, the, I mean, the tragic death of Nathan Cirillo a few yes. years ago up in Ottawa. I, I remember, you know, as that was occurring, there were reports about gunfire in other parts of the downtown. Well, there wasn't. Right. But as soon as somebody tweets that or, or puts that up on, on social media, others retweet it, and then all of a sudden you've got an issue. And actually, the police had to respond to that. Uh, anybody who's been in Ottawa in that section where the Cenotaph is understands that there's a, a, it's a cavernous area, and, and of course, things echo in there, just like they do at the Dealey Plaza in 1963 when John Kennedy got shot. That's true. And you didn't know where it was coming from. And the police, I guess, have to respond to that. But it, it's it's a misdirection, I guess, of resources that can be problematic. Well, and you've seen it from other inquiries where they say, well, you should have investigated that. So we're obligated to investigate, even if it's not factual, to determine if it is or not. And to your point, that requires resources to find out. 
Yes, there can be wild goose chases sometimes, but we can't just dismiss it out of hand and say, well, we don't think that happened, so we're not going to, like, it doesn't work that way. So to your point, we have to check on that information, establish if it's true or not. In the post-analysis, you know, whether you're watching a show on TV or otherwise, you have the filtered facts by that point. Uh, our response, and, and I've often said it, it's like walking in the middle of a play in many ways when you arrive at the scene. One, you don't know who the characters are. You don't have a list of the cast. You don't know what the script is saying. And you're coming in halfway through the play and got to figure it out. So you do your best based on experience, on what you know, and then what presents in front of you. But you can't, you have to be difficult, or you have to be careful not to make assumptions about what is happening. Now, you made a statement a minute ago. I just wanted to, to reinforce this. Uh, the investigation into that initial incident in March is still ongoing? That's correct. So there has been one arrest so far? Correct. Uh, is there an anticipation there may be more? Uh, we are actively investigating any leads we have and any information that's flowing from uh, the current charges before the courts. So that's that's the way that's the status on that. Uh, interesting, and uh, the, the way things have turned out there, and uh, and, and obviously the police uh, protocol that was followed in situations like this. Uh, a number of other things I want to get into, and I know we're going to take a break in just a couple of minutes. But uh, there's a, a sidebar issue here, Chief, that I wanted to get your comment on, uh, and we're going to do this before we do the break and go to some phone calls. Uh, you talked about the naloxone issue uh, here in the streets of Hamilton, and and I know that uh, when others were, were jumping on side with this and, and talking about the efficacy of, of, of naloxone on a short-term basis, you still had some reservations about this and said you wanted to do some, some more research. Uh, and you have moved on side, and the officers are going to be uh, equipped with, uh, with some of the officers anyway with naloxone kits. But in the Barton Street Jail uh, inquiry that we're hearing right now, we're, we're starting to hear some stories about the good, the bad, and the ugly of naloxone. It's not a wonder drug, and it's not a fix-all, is it? Yeah, and there are liabilities. And, uh, you know, if you go back to two and a half years, almost three years when I was doing the preliminary research, my guiding principles all the way along have, have been what was best for the person being treated. We knew from the states largely at that time that's where the information came out of. In the states where EMS had responded and ministered, that had better outcomes for the client for a number of reasons. One, we don't tend to get disclosures from people, either assisting the person who's unconscious or otherwise. What did they have? Uh, geez, I don't know. Um, relative to the person who has addictions, they may not want to tell you what they've had because, and this may not make sense to others, but uh, quite frankly, they may be worried about their stash uh, that they're going to use two days later, and they don't particularly want the police to execute a warrant and get that stash. Um, so when you have a disclosure to EMS, usually they'll tell them at least what they've ingested, if they know. And then our view is it's imperative that they get to medical treatment, and we're seeing it out of the Barton Street. Naloxone only works for about four to six hours on average. Depending on what has been ingested and the toxicity and concentration, uh, it may uh, deter the effects for that time period, and then you may still be at risk beyond that four to six hour period. Uh, we have no way to compel somebody once they come back from a naloxone uh, use and then they're conscious and of sound mind and say, I'm not interested in medical treatment. By the way, get out of my house. Uh, we have to do that. Uh, but there are still risks and liabilities to them. So what happened in the interim was uh, we've had a lot more code zeros with our EMS, and that's been very publicly um, reported on. So now I'm in a position as a chief to say, well, we may be the first responders. It may be the best outcome. So that's why we decided to go ahead with Enlaxone. I'm still concerned about uh, people properly disclosing what they had, you know, if it's not to us, to EMS, to a medical doctor, I still have concerns about the outcome for that person. 
But we heard that when we did our five-part series uh, some time ago about naloxone. And uh, I, I know Deputy Chief Kinsella was here, but some other frontline officers and others that are in social service work. And and they, that's a, a real, an existing problem where yep. people are, are reticent to talk about this because they're afraid they're going to get arrested. Sure. And, and we understand that. And really our first treatment is um, the wellness of the person getting them to medical treatment. It really is. I'm not as interested in a you know drug bust. Having said that, you walk into the premise and somebody is unconscious and there's five kilos of cocaine sitting there because they haven't tucked it away because they went unconscious in the interim. I have some obligations as a police officer to follow up on that because we still have the issue of trafficking. We still have the issue of um, the presence of very toxic drugs these days. In fact, many of the users don't even know what they're getting because people are spiking it with fentanyl or carfentanyl. Why they would do that, I don't understand from a basic supply and demand piece. If you're killing your clients, it just doesn't make sense to me. But in any event, um, they're putting in fentanyl or fentanyl or carfentanyl, and even the user doesn't know what they're getting. All right, we have to do a break. I'm going to come back in a couple of minutes. We are going to go to your phone calls. The lines are open now at 905-645-3221, star 9900. Email bkelly at 900chml.com, and on Twitter... At CHML Bill Kelly. It's the Chiefs Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is here. He'll take your calls, your questions, your emails, and uh, a number of other things I want to talk to the Chief about uh, right after the, the time out here. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Let me get some phone calls in here, and I want to talk about a couple of other things uh, with the Chief in uh, just a couple of seconds. And uh, a lot of folks have been hanging on for a while, and I do appreciate that. Bill, thanks for your patience. Go ahead for Chief. Hello, Bill. Hi. Good morning, uh, uh, Mr. Chief. Uh, I was just wondering, like, about those two uh, policemen that shot that young man. Uh, who's doing the investigation? And to some people, it's all over, but not for the families. You know, it's getting like Dodge City. What are you referring to, Bill? Which which incident? That young man that was shot by two policemen here on the mountain. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you're talking about the investigation? Get a fundraiser for to uh, for his funeral and everything. I think this should be the police. The cops should pay for his funeral. Should pay for his funeral. Well, all right. I, 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 there's a there's a, a protocol that has to be followed here, Bill. So I want the chief to well, respond to that. Yeah, it's all right. Well, ha- well, just hold on. We'll answer it for yeah. you. Thank you, sir. It's a special investigations unit that has the mandate. Uh, anytime there's interaction between police officers and citizens where there's serious bodily harm or death and a potential nexus for criminal activity, uh, then the SIU will invoke its mandate. Once they do. I am compelled by law, not through choice, I'm compelled by law not to speak to the incident. And uh, that is why when you, uh, you know, have an absence of commentary from the police in regard to what happened, it's because we're prohibited by law and that the SIU has the primacy and is doing the investigation. Uh, so I'm actually not allowed by law to comment on uh, what is happening relevant, and we are not doing the investigation. It's the SIU that does that. that and that special investigations unit, which I'm, I'm sure you've heard of, uh, Bill, her our caller, that uh, they've been involved in other investigations, not just in Hamilton, but right across the province. Uh, there's always been a concern, Chief, about how much time it takes for them to do that. Uh, and I know that the the Attorney General has tried to address that in the last little while. Are you satisfied that they're moving forward on that and trying to accelerate that process? I mean, you want it done right, but at the same time, as, as our caller mentioned, uh, for the sake of the families and, frankly, for the sake of the officers involved, the, the sooner this thing gets resolved and, and there's a report done, the sooner that we can move on. And you're quite right, Bill. Uh, we, we talked about it earlier with regard to uh, the investigation down on Lock Street. 
And we think uh, and agree uh, that the proper investigation needs to be done in a timely fashion. We have stated that as Justice Tullock came around and did his review, both on the SIU, the OIPRD, and lastly on OCPC. But the ones that touch us primarily are the Special Investigation Unit and the Office of the Independent Police Review Director. Uh, so in Justice Tullock's recommendations, which went forward and then have made up part of Bill 175, uh, he has recommended a more timely disposition with some timelines included. And as you know, a member, uh, Vice President of the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police, we have been advocating for this just for the reasons you state, Bill. It's in everyone's interest to have um, uh, a timely investigation done and the outcome known and that the facts are known. And and once that report is out, obviously, there'll be uh, some comment, I'm sure, from the community and from police and everyone else. Thanks so much for the call, Bill. I appreciate uh, you getting in here and uh, giving the chief a chance to respond to that. Tom, you're next on the Bill Kelly Show. How are you this morning, Tom? Hey, I'm well, Bill. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'd like to ask the chief, or I'd like to actually make a comment. I, I don't believe that we should be asking our sworn officers to look after medical things such as overdosing on carfentanil in a similar practice as we shouldn't be asking our nurses to look after policing issues. I, I don't think it's in the best interest of the professionals that we're asking to protect us, and I don't think it's in the community's best interest. I'll hang up, and uh, thank you for your time. Good call. Thanks so, so much, Tom. Tom. Go ahead, Chief. And thank you for the question, Tom. And yes, this did weigh into the equation, and there's a certain creep factor, so to speak, uh, with regard to duties. And, and I agree with you. Part of my apprehension about our officers treating for medical uh issues is, is it in fact an overdose? It could be a diabetic shock. It could be a heart attack. It could be a range of other things. We're not clinicians. We're not paramedics. Uh, so again, to go back to my original point, we believe EMS should be there. Uh, if in fact we have a, a, an opportunity because they're not there to dispense the naloxone, as you know, uh, the treatment itself uh, doesn't lead to other complications. Uh, it can be a deterrent to, to have uh, opioid receptors in the brain blocked for that period of time, four to six hours. Uh, but I don't disagree with you, but at the same time, uh, you know, when we're talking about wellness within uh, our society, our cities, uh, we have a certain responsibility, just like we would render first aid at an accident scene until somebody else got there. We had the most recent event where an officer applied a tourniquet to the young girl who was injured on the train. Uh, that was probably, in my view, uh, of course I wasn't there, but I've certainly heard, the, heard uh, the rendition of what happened, a life-saving measure. So we applied a tourniquet. This is kind of similar to that. Uh, but again, um, you know, if EMS was there and could respond each and every time, you know, I'd be saying still maintaining that we shouldn't get in the business. Uh, but where we have an opportunity where it's longer and we can administer life-saving measures, then we'll do that. Thanks so much for the call. 905-645-3221. Star 9900 is toll-free on the phones for uh, Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. Arlene, you're next on the program. How are you this morning, Arlene? I'm good. Yourself? Great, thank you. Go ahead for the Chief. Uh, my question for you is a little bit of a different one. I live in the James Street North community, and I walk, I'm a pedestrian, I don't drive, and I'm concerned about pedestrian safety. Um, I walk up and down the street, and there are times when I have gone up and down James North and been approached by people that seem to be in mental distress. How do I deal with that as a pedestrian? Yeah, and, it's and how are the police addressing that? I mean, I don't want to call 911 when I see a crazy person walking down the street. And I was actually involved in an incident a, couple, a year ago where an individual was walking down the street 
was punched in the face and fell to the ground, and no one came to his rescue. So I stopped and helped him up and called the paramedics and got him off to his medical care. And, you know, with the gentrification, I'm noticing more and more people are just looking away from people in distress and people in need. Okay, there's a, there's a mix of commentary and questions there, so I'll answer the question. One is, um, it's less to do with the pedestrian than it has to do with, um, and not even the geographic area. Uh, we know the prevalence of mental health issues uh, in our society. It's one in five that are affected. Absolutely. You're talking about actually a, a physical assault that would uh, certainly, uh, you know, require us to respond. And um, they did. And actually, right. they were the police were very good. I gave them all my contact information, yeah. and they were very helpful. Well, as were you, because as you said, some people will not intervene or step forward either as a witness or to help that person or ourselves. So, one, we appreciate that. Uh, relative to your own physical safety, and that can be from any physical threat. If you can know somebody's being assaultive, it's as simple, really, as crossing the street or going in the other direction. Absolutely. Or, you know, if it requires it, running. Running is okay, um, oh, particularly oh, if you're not up to the fight and don't particularly want to. Um, so it's a broader question. In, in terms of pedestrians, uh, I don't know that's specific to James Street because, uh, as we know, in our responses to mental health situations, actually right across the entire city. Now, obviously, you know, if you're up in Flamborough, you're not going to run into the same uh, oh, de- degree of people I present. I get work that. in the Nebel and Rymel area, and it's yep. a completely different demographic yep. than what I live in. Well, and also a physical environment. So r- I think really your question is about personal safety. What do you do? Well, you try and ensure that you stay safe. Yes, you know, you can call us, and if you are apprehensive because you don't know how the person is going to act, We'll respond. We deal with, uh, you know, uh, we've expanded our unit for responding to mental health issues, whether it's our crisis intervention team trained officers for all the front line. Um, We have about 382 currently trained. Uh, And then we have specialized units, either coast, social navigator, or if it's a life-threatening situation, our mobile crisis rapid response team. Now, the action team, what do they do? Because I think the experience I had last night walking home, I'm also doing a night class at Mohawk, so I get to walk down Jane Street North at t- after 10 p.m., there's an individual basically walking down the street yelling at whomever was crossing his path. Mm-hmm. Um, what do I do in that situation? He's, doesn't, he's not threatening, but he's just not right. We will often I personally felt safe. Yeah. Now, is there, is there a patrol that still goes around the downtown core at the time of night? Yes, action is still out. Of course, they're doing not just the downtown area, but other areas. Could be Concession Street, could be out in the East End, could be a specific high crime area or a specific event. So they will be dispatched to a number of areas. Relative to your question, we get calls. Quite often, we'll know the people as well. Um, You'll give us a description. Okay, that's such and such. We'll still respond, but we may know the person based on your description or they tend to frequent there. We have uh, one gentleman who, if you haven't seen him, is quite uh, talented at dancing. And oh, yes, it's, it's, the dancing it's not the same number all the time. I'm quite <laughs> impressed by the variety of moves he has. And, uh, you know, he's, <laughs> he's really, <laughs> my view is he's just enjoying himself. Anytime I've seen him. I agree, actually. He's just out there having a really good right. time. But relative to the general population, the vast majority of people don't do that, so it tends to stand out. Uh, yes. And again, for some people, that might be viewed as threatening. Others, you just go, 
Always having a good time. So, you know, if you're apprehensive, we'll certainly receive the calls, and we may, in fact, know that person. Okay, Arlene, i got to jump okay, in. i got a lot of other calls. Listen, thanks so much for the call. I think you've opened up an interesting line of questioning here. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Arlene. Uh, I'm going to get to a, a couple more calls in just a couple of seconds, but I promised I was going to talk about uh, the Move Over campaign. I got a number of emails about that earlier this week. Perhaps you could touch on that, Chief. Yeah, so this arose a number of years back, primarily through the OPP, where you had officers struck who were either uh, investigating accidents, doing traffic stops, and what would happen is people would just carry on doing, you know, 100, 120K in the curb lane and either be, and this is frequent, uh, people tend to look at that red light and you tend to look or you tend to drive where you look, and then we had a number of fatal collisions. So there's legislation introduced a number of years back that required uh, not just for police, but any emergency services being uh, police, fire, EMS, and in fact tow trucks, because uh, they're just as much at risk, to move over to the left if you can do so safely. So to provide basically uh, the lane beside where this action is going on to keep it free of traffic. Now, again, uh, if you can't move over safely because it's just too congested, then you can't. But it requires you to slow down and move over if you can. We're just reemphasizing this for everybody's safety. And, and we actually ran a couple of video clips, which were a little hair-raising, uh, where you see an officer with a traffic stop and he sees uh, a rather large truck coming. Uh, he scoots to the front of the vehicle, gets out of the way. The thing misses the door by a few inches. Um, and you can only imagine what would happen because the officer was standing exactly there. Um, and he'd probably be dead. So uh, it's just trying to ensure that everybody stays safe. And then not only do you have the original event, accident, traffic stop, now you've got potentially a serious collision and traffic's just going to get worse. So pull down, pull over if you can, slow down definitely, and try and create that safe lane beside the person working in that area. Having spent an awful lot of time doing highway driving, I, I think the key element there is slow down. First of all, moving over is, is almost secondary. I mean, if you can do it, great. I mean, but this may happen on a two-lane road, too, and you're certainly not going to move into oncoming traffic right. to do this. That's right. Which slow down, yep. for heaven's sakes. And and I would extend that to any vehicle that's on the side. It, yeah. it may just be somebody who's doing a phone call or wants to check, but they're going to pull out into traffic. if they you know it's Just slow down. Just anticipate that something might be going on and slow down, and you can accelerate back to normal speed once you get past it. It's a really good point, Bill, because I've seen people just, uh, you know, changing a flat. Uh, they kind of forget that they're standing in traffic, and they'll actually step out into the curb lane, and if you're the driver, it's like, whoa. Um, so to your point, slowing down will give you that reaction time, but also they may, because they're not used to, people aren't used to changing their, their tires in the middle of traffic. I had to do one on the 400 highway. This mm -hmm. is years ago when I was working way up in Richmond Hill, and it was about 11 o'clock at night, and it was the left front. And and I pulled over as far as I thought right. I could. But I got to tell you something: when you're on your knees with your back to the traffic, and there are people going 120, it's pretty frightening. And yeah. uh, and and even you can get caught in a wind rush and lose your balance. So you know, just slow down, people. That's all. Yeah, and you raise a good point. Most people do not stop on a highway, but when you do, and to your point, whether it's a transport truck or just traffic in general, it's amazing how much of the wind rush there is, the noise, and uh, to your other point, your vulnerability if you're just trying to do the best you can in the situation. So slow down. I mean, that's that's the essence of the whole Move Over campaign. I'll try to squeeze a few more in here uh, before we have to finish off today. Kevin, thanks for holding on. How are you doing this morning? Not too bad, thanks. Thanks Good. for taking my call. Um, my concern is the amount of um, construction equipment that's uh, being driven on the roads these days. You used to see stuff like skid steers and front-end loaders be trailered all around, but now you're seeing them out driving on the road more regularly no license plates 
in all cases. In most cases, no tail lights, no signals, no headlights. And to me, that's quite dangerous. I just wonder what, what the Chiefs got to say on that. Yeah, and then you're testing my traffic uh, knowledge here uh, with slow-moving vehicles and construction equipment. Yes, they don't have to have license plates. Uh, they are required to drive in a safe fashion as best they can. They can drive on the roadway. <clears throat> There's lots of provisions in terms of whether it's farm equipment or construction equipment and where they enter and exit the highway. So the legislation is actually quite complex there. Um, but they are entitled to drive on the roadway um, at the slow speed and have that slow-moving vehicle on the back of it. Okay, thanks. You're All right, hey, and it could be frustrating. <coughs> I, I know that oftentimes if we're driving up north and that's a two-lane road and you get some farmer up there and he's got his equipment on there, but, I mean, they're just doing their job too. And you, a little patience, I guess, goes a long, long way. Steve, you're next on the Bill Kelly Show. How are you, Steve? Good. How are you doing, Bill? Good. Go ahead for the chief. Yes, I was going to ask you about uh, the drum trade, like in local bars where there is, like, obvious uh, cocaine or crack or something going on. I know, like, you were talking earlier about was there actually proof about it, but I was wondering, my question is actually, how would someone go about reporting that, or, <coughs> is, or is it already known, or... Is there anything that, I guess, the common citizen can do about it? And there's a number of ways to report it, as you say. First of all, if, you know, you have no trepidation about being a witness. Uh, we would certainly interested in anything you have to say where and when it happened, who was involved. Uh, that's one component. If you have some apprehension, we certainly take those tips through Crime Stoppers. Uh, we do monitor that, and through our Vice and Drug Unit, we look for bars and have done a number of warrants and arrested a number of people who are uh, dealing drugs in bars. Um, so we certainly uh, will take that seriously, follow up on it. <clears throat> Relative to the investigative standpoint, we may in fact have to have undercover officers go in, make purchases, uh, build the case, so to speak. Um, so there's lots of methods to do that. But your original point about where and when it's happening that you know, if you share with us in either of those uh, ways, it certainly helps us uh, better do our job, and it gives us reason to be at the premise to check on it specifically. We do have the AGCO who goes around and does a whole range of inspections, which is multiple partners at the Alcohol Gaming Commission, uh, but we work in tandem with both with bylaw, fire, a whole range of um, you know services. But again, knowing about it is the most important piece. Thanks so much. i got about 45 seconds <coughs> left here. Uh, since you were here last time, Chief, uh, you have a new deputy. We do. I, I know that you know, something was a big deal about the fact that he's from Toronto Police Services, but he's a Hamilton guy. Uh, Frank has lived, and he, he talked about it, so I can talk about it. He's lived in Hamilton for 29 years. Uh, he policed in Toronto for 36. He's currently a staff superintendent. He'll be starting April 30th. All right. So, and, and uh, we, and sorry, and we also have a chief administrative yeah. officer standing or starting as well, the same date, and a police who uh, worked for the city for some time, and maybe known to people that uh, have frequented city hall in the finance department. So, <laughs> you have a full complement now: two deputies and, and a uh, chief financial officer. Uh, for Hamilton Police Services. Uh, we're right out of time. Thanks so much for this. Great to have you in here. Thank you, Bill. As always, appreciate the uh, the dialogue. Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gerb. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, I want to talk about uh, the sign. Uh, and this, of course, is the Hamilton sign. This is uh, something that uh, is a grassroots project that a number of people in this community got behind uh, and uh, it's finally come to reality. It's uh, it's being built. I guess it's in its finishing touches uh, based on some of the pictures I've seen on uh, social media, spe Facebook especially, in the last little while. Uh, joining us to talk about this is a good friend, Graham Crawford, history and heritage owner, 
uh, and an active Hamiltonian. Good to have you in here. Thanks well, so much. Thanks, Bill. It's great to uh, be it's, back. Well, it's good to uh, you finally put the trowel down on the hammer at the Westdale Theater Project, and you <laughs> spent a few a minutes moment. with us. That's the good work to see. Continues, I assure you. Yeah, and 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 we mentioned off the top, Graham, that there are a lot of people that are responsible for this Hamilton sign. Uh, Laura Babcock, uh, P.J. Mercanti, a number of folks come to mind. But this has been a labor of love for a lot of people for a long time. Well, it has, and I must. First of all, say, I'm not directly involved in the sign, except that I did take a tour, because I know Mike Kokuska, who is... Yeah, this uh, is, it's being done locally. That's one of the other great news. The, Bill, this is a big part of this story, in my opinion. This is a handcrafted, superbly designed uh, and fabricated sign, which is why I went to have a look at Hamilton uh, scenic specialty is... There's, they're sort of hidden in Dundas, mm-hmm. but they literally create stuff that's been trucked down to Broadway literally put on trucks and sent to Hollywood for major sets and they're and they're fabricating this sign they also do tons of other stuff but I've known Mike for a number of years so I gave him a call and said could I come and have a look at this thing because I was watching the photographs they were putting on uh, social media looked pretty exciting looked extremely well designed and built as I knew Mike would do because he's, yeah. he's the chief designer and owner but it's a big team of craftspeople who are putting this thing together and Bill I'm telling you when I walked in and saw the scale of this thing. It's, this is a big sign. How, how big is it? Well, I mean, I don't know the actual dimensions. Uh, it I, looks pretty large. I've seen some of the yeah, pictures. What I, what I would say is the letters are, are probably, uh, obviously the I is the thinnest one, but, but the M is probably eight feet wide. Maybe it may be even slightly wider, but I'd say eight feet, and it's got to be at least eight feet tall each letter. Um, it's, it's the detail of the design, though. And in fact, Mike showed me they, they, how they bent things they actually created a machine fabricated their own machine to do the bending uh and he showed me this thing and i think what really like you you invented this thing and they fabricated it in the shop in order to bend the letters so you get all these beautiful curves seamless curves and i've got to tell you bill i was just so impressed with the attention to detail we are going to be proud of this thing uh as I, I said to Fred Eisenberger, Mayor Eisenberger, I wonder how many selfies are going to be taken in the first 12 months. Oh, thousands. 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 And the great thing about this thing, Bill, is, I mean, I, I, other, I've seen these signs in other cities, not, you know, in Amsterdam, Paris has mm-hmm. got uh, one, but they're all over the world. But this one, I think, is it's certainly the most elegant and refined one that I've seen personally. Now, maybe others will have seen others that they like better, but this is not plywood and plastic. There's a couple of things about this, and and I was always supportive of this idea. And and when Laura and PJ decided to kind of team up and, and say, okay, we're going to make this happen. Enough of this talk, and 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 they did to their credit, and and lots of other folks have jumped on. And I've had both of them on the show to talk about this. And and there were a couple of reasons why I was supportive of this right from the get go. First of all, I see the tourism advantages yeah, to this. Yeah. I'm also looking at the Hamilton City Hall and the forecourt there, which is what you see when you're driving along Main Street. And notwithstanding some of the best efforts of some of the people of the city, it's still barren. It's it's open. It's I I know that there are people that love architecture. They're going to say, oh, it's I don't care what style it is. It still looks barren. This will catch people's eye. This is going to be the thing that's going to dominate this. And I know people say, wow, there's one at Nathan Phillips Square in Toronto. It gets lost in Nathan Phillips Square because it's such a huge, huge area with the skating rink there and, and the arches and so many other things. Oh, yeah, there's the sign way back there. This is going to be right up there. And, and I like that idea. Well, the thing is, I'm a big fan of, of Stanley Roscoe's design of City Hall. He was the architect. I think it's sleek. It's modern. It's beautiful. Attention to detail. 
this sign actually is, is designed with those same principles in my view. I mean, it's all personal. I'm not an expert in this, but I... In the I, eye of the beholder, of I course. I know what I like, you know, that sort of thing. But, Bill, I was talking to, to Mike Kukuska, the, the, the designer of this, and he was telling me, I said, so exactly where is this going to go on the City Hall forecourt? He said, well, it's not going to go where we originally thought it was going to go, and here's why. He said, we, we took out a cell phone and we did decided to figure out how far back did you have to go to get the whole sign in? Guess where you'd be? In the middle of Main Street. <laughs> so they, they're pushing it closer to City Hall because you know as well as I built some people would actually have stood in traffic oh, yeah, between yeah. traffic lights. So they thought, we can't do this. So it's just a little tidbit. But I but I like, again, it's further attention to detail before it goes in and then we discover we've got a problem. Now, this is multifunctional, though. It's going to have oh. multicolored, depending and on the mood you want to any portray. Color, it's programmable. And, and the, the team showed me the, the different kinds of colors. Any color you can imagine, any Pantone color, any color... They can mix the colors electronically, and there's two sets of light, two kinds of lights. There's the lights that outline the letters, and they can be different colors. Every letter can be a different color if you want, or they can flash, or they can do whatever you want. But there's also floodlights within the letters themselves. So the interior of the three-dimensional hollow, in a sense, letters can also be lit different colors if you want. It's a, it's really a thing of beauty. It's going to be a showpiece, and, and, and I think that's what was lacking yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, somebody can probably give us the number, Graham, but the number of cars that drive past that on a daily basis yeah. on Main Street. And yeah. I, I know it's a large number. Uh, and the pedestrians. And and when we ever get this LRT built, uh, uh, you know, there's going to be an awful lot of folks that are going to be going by. It's a, it's going to be a showpiece. And, and I think you need things like that in a city. It's, it's a, Yeah, it's a matter of pride. And, and the biggest selling point from my standpoint, even when I get some people that will come on the show here or call the show and say, well, I think it's a dumb idea, it's not costing you a nickel. Well, that's right. It's completely privately funded, and I think that's very important. Uh, when I did my post, Bill, on social media, some people said, Gee, how much is this going to cost to power? What's the energy consumption? And I asked Mike, oddly enough, before I posted this, I said, so tell me about that. It's going to take about 400 watts, but a hair, it's like a hair dryer. Um, that per day, that's what it's going to cost. So in other words, nothing. Minimal, yeah. I mean, basically nothing. When you plug into the city hall structure, I mean, you know, how, like, you think the hydro bills are going to go up? I don't think they'll even be a blip. But, but Bill, I agree with you. It's both pride, but it's also just fun. Like, I think people will actually enjoy, Hamiltonians will enjoy having their own pictures taken on the, in this in and around and on, literally on this sign. Because you can sit on the L. Uh, Laura Babcock, my friend Laura Babcock, and your friend Laura Babcock, uh, she was at the, the, the preview, the sneak preview. Oh, and she had the kids there. So yeah, she had the kids <laughs> so, there inside the O. Yeah, and that was cute. It was very cute. Um, That's how I got the perspective as to how it, big it was. I, it I saw Daryl standing there, the son, and just thought, okay, this is huge. Yeah, it is. It is huge. Um, and yet it's elegant. It's not clumsy. Uh, another again, attention to detail. So there's a platform it sits on, which is only up maybe eight inches or something. But it has to have a platform because there's wiring and mm -hmm. that needs to be secured. Sure. And so, on. but in the middle of the letters, there's a, there's this U-shaped cut in in the platform. I said, Mike, what's that for? He said, that's so you can push a wheelchair right up to the letter. You can touch the letter, um, so that because otherwise 
you wouldn't be able to physically connect with the sign if you were in a wheelchair because the platform sticks out, you know, a, a couple of feet maybe. Maybe it's a foot and a half. I don't know. But um, I thought, okay, I love it. You know, like that attention to detail, thinking about how people will interact with the sign. This is not the kind of sign that you just look at from afar. You actually want to go up. You want to touch it. I know I'm going to go, and I'm going to get my picture taken. And I'm not one for selfies. I, in fact, I hate seeing myself in photographs. Mm-hmm. But, but- – Hey, this is this is fun. It's going to create a buzz, and and anything that creates a buzz downtown, I think, is a really cool idea. And yeah. uh, and again, and it's imminent. I mean, this is going to be happening oh, yeah. in just a little while. Twenty seventh of, of April, uh, the mayor has said that it will be seven p.m. at night, uh, and it will be unveiled and lit. And uh, I I hope a lot of people show up for the unveiling because I think it's going to be, as I say, there'll be pride, and why not? Because I think we've done a great job of this sign. We haven't, and some people say we just copied everybody else. And you know what? If you think this is a copy, come down, have a look at it once it's installed, and then decide: Does this look like any other city sign you've ever seen? Because Bill, I'll tell you, I, I don't know how many I've seen, but maybe ten. This looks nothing like any of the ones I've seen. We're just now, after all these years, starting to uh, get used to the fact that you know it's okay to beat our own drum. Uh, and yes. sell ourselves, and you know, and and because we had this, oh, we're just from Hamilton. No, now it's hey, we're from Hamilton, Hamilton. Uh, and Hamilton Pride, and we talked about that. Yeah, there's, there's been a number of programs over the years about that. You know, I Heart Hamilton and those things, and and they were great in their time. But this is, you know, economically things are happening right now. Where we're we're one of the top seven, you know. It, uh, educational cities. Uh, we are education center now because of this. We're one of the smart cities in the world, one of the top seven. It's about time we started blowing our own horn. And this is one of the things that enhances that. That's like, hey, look at that. That's oh, us. Hey, look at that and therefore look at us. Yeah. Uh, look at our downtown. Look at King William. How many photographs do you think have been taken of that King William stretch in yeah. the last two years since it was transformed? Um, it's it's happening. And there's nothing second tier about about this stuff, Bill. This is, we have every right to be proud as a city. We may be the 10th largest, uh, but there is a lot of soul in the city, and uh, pride and fun are good. <laughs> yeah. We could only get one as you enter the city now, but that's another argument, I guess, yes. that's going to happen. Uh, as we're talking about the things that we need to be proud of, I would be remiss, uh, since I've got you in here, if I didn't ask you about uh, an update on, on what you guys are doing with the Westdale. I mean, I drove by there a couple of weeks ago. Actually, you were just pulling away, oh, okay. uh, and they were finishing some of the stonework up on top yeah. and the facing on there. So yeah. work is progressing on this. Uh, a lot of folks waiting to see how this is going to turn out. Yeah, it, and work is progressing. As you know, when you do a restoration, uh, certainly if you do a renovation, this is a restoration, which is even fussier. It gets messy before it gets neat. Mm-hmm. And uh, But the exterior, we, we have revealed the original facade. We had to, to fix yeah. it because it was actually leaning, but it's all original. Every brick was taken down carefully and put back up. It looks beautiful in my opinion, and lots of people tell us it is. But inside, the work is, is very much underway. And Bill, I, I just want to say one thing happened last week. We, we have an area at the back of the theater. For those who have been to the Westdale Theater over the years, you maybe remember those glass windows at the back of yeah, the theater. Yeah, sure. So we took those out and we cut the walls down and we're pouring a platform through there. There will be space for five wheelchairs and companion seat, and two companion seats. We had someone just last week who said, I would like to pay to construct that section. So they gave us a check for $25,000. And so we're in, these are prime, it's a prime location. There's nothing sort of secondary about this. Uh, they're right in the center. 
And we're just so pleased to have this, but also so proud to have somebody come up to us and say, that's important. I want to pay for it, the whole thing, the construction and everything. So, Bill, it's very much underway. We're hugely excited about it. Well, we'll have you and Fred in again pretty soon. Yeah. And we can talk about how the thing is progressing and, and the long-term plans. Just to, I think it's to, to remind some folks about this because it's one of the great projects that's going on. And it's, it's kind of happening. It's right in West Dill Village, but yeah. it's, there's somebody there every day. I mean, I, our son goes off to school there once a week, and I just drive by there, and I say, well, this is, this is really kind of neat to see this happening. Because for those of us who, who used to go to the West Dale as, as frequently or infrequently as it might have been, uh, we wanted to see this happen. You don't yeah. want us to lose a building like that. No, you don't. And in fact, what we're, it's going to be even, I mean, I hate to say even better than, but certainly better than any of our memories because uh, it kind of got changed uh, back in 1969. Prior to that, it mm-hmm. you know, was the original design. Well, it's going to be the original design again. Every detail will be based on the original architectural drawings. So it's, it's going to be beautiful. I got to give you a plug though. For those that want to get involved in, and help out, whether it's a donation or whatever, how can they reach you guys? They can go online at buildingmagic.ca. Buildingmagic.ca is our website. You can make a contribution. You can buy things. We have local artists have put up uh, prints. They've donated prints. We are getting all of the money from those proceeds. You can also still buy some seats. I'm, I'm happy to say we've sold about 300 of 350 seats, but there are still some left. So those sorts of things would be hugely helpful if you can, if you can if you've got some money. It's going to be a great time uh, and a, and a great project and uh, that's one of the other things. We're going to make this city well. It already is great, yes. but we're going to let people know about it. I agree. Starting I, from the West Dale Theater all the way to downtown to the sign to lots of other stuff too. It's happening here, and so some people may just not want to be part of the parade, and that's fine. That's their choice. But uh, I'm glad that uh, that there are folks that are the movers and shakers in this community that are going to say, damn it, we're going to make this happen anyway. Good for you. I agree completely. Good stuff. Thanks, Grant. Good to have you in here again. Thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.